Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. Uh, I'm Pastor Donald Riley, joined as always by Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Not too cold today. Space Not too cold. To be working. That's right. Well, we are coming to our listeners live from Bogota, Colombia, the lower level of the Behavioral Sciences Unit of Higher Things Headquarters. Colombia. I have a great Colombia coffee right now. You do. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I find it quite delicious. There you go. Boom. Nice segue. Mets into a segue, into an advertisement, back into the show. Uh, so we got to... It's like we've done this before or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. It's professionalism that allows us to make these quick cuts. Uh, no, we are the, uh, what would you say? We are mm-hmm. the, uh, if we were a martial art, we would be Muay Thai. That's what it is. Or we'd be that, that martial art where they used the ferns. Oh, yeah. Twig foo. <laughs> Twig foo. <laughs> That's just <laughs> silliness. You want to talk about mass hypnosis? People that believe in chi and that kung fu <laughs> is mass oh. delusion, mass hypnosis. I am the iron yeah. fist. Oh, it's just crazy. There was actually, you can go on YouTube and watch these videos, but there, last year, this MMA fighter in China challenged a, a Wing Chun master to a fight to disprove, you know, kung fu, Wing Chun. And yeah. as you would expect, the the master, the Wing Chun master, expected his chi to protect him from this guy because there's these videos of him in his dojo and students run at him and he just throws his hands up and they go flying backwards and tumbling over themselves and no one can touch him because his chi is so centered, so powerful. Nice. And this MMA fighter just beat the life out of this guy. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, it was it's a very interesting thing because he was very respectful. In the, because there was this age difference, so he yeah. just punched him. The, right. And the the Wing Chun master was so surprised that he was bleeding from his nose. He was stunned that this guy could hit him because his chi was so powerful. And then the referee asked if he wanted to continue. The old man said, yeah, you know, I just got to refocus my chi. And then he came in, tie clinched him, kneed him in the face a couple times, punched him, guy went mm. down. Mm. And uh, the, the guy that the MMA fighter had to go into hiding because Kung Fu was the, that's the national martial art of China. Wing Chun yeah, it's Kung like Fu, a religion, right? really. It right? is very much so, very much so. In the sense of, if you're in Brazil and you're a soccer fan, if you were to caught, you know, something would happen where somebody exposed your soccer hero, your football hero, in in as a fraud, uh, yeah. as a fraud, or something like that, or he was a cheater. Uh, the the player himself might get murdered, <laughs> as well as the person who revealed it, because they're just that fervent about football, about soccer in Brazil, in the same way in China about Kung Fu. And I watched a follow-up interview with this MMA fighter, and even the government uh, was trying to shut him down. And, because if you think about it from that perspective, it's the national martial art of China, but it's also uh, what all students practice. They all learn it in school, and it's all a part of the communist wow. system, right? Mm. Because it is about mm. obedience and working together as a unit and a communal whole. And MMA is seen as being very individualistic and very anti-tradition and very anti-Kung Fu and therefore anti-government. style and all that kind of individuality. Well, it takes from the West. It takes from the West. Mm. And why, why do you need to learn other martial arts when Kung Fu is the only martial art that's legit? Mm. And so for this guy to not only do this to the Wing Chun master, but also to record it so that millions and millions of people can see this, isn't just a, a blow to traditional Kung Fu – it's an attack against the government. What's the difference between uh, wing? What do you call it? Wing Fu? Wing Chung. Wing Chung and Wang Chung. Wang Chung would be an early 80s pop group. 
which I may or may not do tonight. I may Wang Chung tonight, <laughs> but I definitely not Wing Chung tonight. There <laughs> okay, will be no was, no dancing crane or tiger claw attacks. I was a little confused in the house today. So there's that, yeah. So <laughs> in it, you know, it, the thing about these kung fu uh, traditions, these styles, is that for centuries they went completely unchallenged, untested. And mm. whole schools grew up around these Kung Fu masters. And you can watch Shaw Brothers movies from the early 70s, late 60s. You can watch Jet Li movies, even Donnie mm-hmm. Yen movies, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it Man is a perfect example of this. Oh, right. Yeah, it's and on Netflix, Chung right? Method. Right. Jackie Chan studied, uh, Sammo Hung, these guys studied uh, this particular form of Kung Fu. Yeah, you can watch this on Netflix. Uh, the Peking Opera House is a training grounds for this too, where the, the, the martial arts become theater. Mm. And Jackie Chan is trained in that tradition. And um, so what happens, though, is that it, it pretty much just grows generation to generation unchallenged. And as a consequence, it can be the national, it's, it's the national, you know, martial art of China. But what happened then in the early 90s with the advent of uh, the uh, UFC Ultimate Fighting Challenge and the Gracies, the jiu-jitsu family from Brazil that moved to the United States – is that the purpose of the Ultimate Fighting Championship in 1982-93 was to invite one of every martial art in the world, essentially, the best in their field, and have them get in a cage together and fight. And whichever person won, that proved that their martial art was the legit martial art. And so it's like, so like a real-life Mortal Kombat then. Very, well, it was even labeled. I mean, it was originally when the Gracies conceived of this, there was the cage, but they, they toyed with the idea of having an electrified fence for oh, a cage wow. and a moat with alligators in it. Oh, yeah, barbed wire <laughs> on the top. It was very Thunderdome. It was. Yeah. And, wow. uh, but they, you know, somebody came in and said, I don't think we can get this on pay per view if we do all those things. And they were going to make a no lot rounds, more money no rules. if you just yes. scaled it back a little Tweak bit. It. Just scale back. <laughs> and so they did this, and Hoist won. And Hoist was this small man. He's 135, 145 pounds. Mm. And he went against these huge American wrestlers, these kickboxers, all these different people, and he beat them all. And that was really a turning point in the history of martial arts because for the first time, all these different martial arts were tested. And yeah. Also, then what came out as a consequence is that Kung Fu is not a legitimate combat martial art. And now you can prove it. And this is all relatively recent. Like I said, it wasn't really until 96, 97 that people started becoming aware of traditional legitimate martial arts like Jiu-Jitsu, like Muay Thai, like Mm. Dutch kickboxing and, and other things. And so as a consequence, people looked at traditional martial arts like Kung Fu, like karate, like Taekwondo and went, huh, I don't think this would work in a real street fight, except unless you're at like a very high level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it hasn't actually been up until very recently in the last four or five years that jujitsu has really caught on popularly in the United States where people like, you know, it's popular when parents bring their kids to class to take mm-hmm. the class and yeah. you can go to any karate Taekwondo school in any small town and it'll be full. Because everybody knows, popularly speaking, what karate, what Taekwondo is. It's been around mm-hmm. since, what, the after the Second World War, really, when people yeah. started coming in back. The US, in Korea, yeah. primarily Korea, since it's a Korean martial art. And, um, you know, bringing back karate from Japan, from the South Pacific, specifically, soldiers after the war and whatnot. And, of course, Bruce Lee with Enter the Dragon, really, that was the turning right. point. That yeah. was, Bruce Lee was the turning point. And... 
he's really credited as being kind of the godfather of mixed martial arts because he didn't just, you know, he didn't just uh, practice one martial art. He was constantly incorporating other forms, boxing, mm. kickboxing, so forth, Muay Thai, mm -hmm. yeah. into his form, um, Jeet Kune Do. And uh, I'm totally geeking out on this stuff. But uh, I had Muay Thai tonight, so that's why I'm thinking about it. But you get into a traditional martial art like Muay Thai, which is the national martial art of Thailand, for example. And then once you start to learn Muay Thai, you understand why it's not a good idea to invade Thailand. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't gone well for pretty no. much anybody. I mean, if, you, if you're going to do a flyover and drop napalm, but <laughs> just don't go in to fight a conventional war against people that can right. attack you. No hand-to-hand. That's all right. eight limbs, right? Um, in yeah. fact, it's called the art of eight limbs, Muay Thai, the art of eight limbs. Uh, feet, knees, hands, elbows. And mm. in, a, in a pinch, if you need a headbutt, you know. But <laughs> primarily just those, those appendages. And this has really changed everything about martial arts, especially in the United States. And that's like the UFC is the fastest growing sport. Uh, because of of this this interest now that it's not just seen as a blood sport or, or human cockfighting as one politician referred to it, but it's now a legitimate fighting combat sport, and mm -hmm. it's changed everything um, about viewing sports and people's involvement. Because the thing is, if I put my kids in football, the chances of my right. kids winning the genetic lottery, you making it through junior high, high school on a team, not getting injured. Uh, right. everything. There's so much that has the 1% of the 1% of the 1% make it to the NFL. Right. And that's just not realistic for 99% of the population then that, especially with open enrollment and high schools basically using a draft now uh, right. to get students, it's not possible. You, you just, there's so much that has to go in your favor for you to even be eligible for that level of, of like, even though, even the the last team in the conference is still better than any football team that I ever played for or mm. against in high school, period. Right, exactly. You look at the yeah. high schools today, they would murder my high school football team. Um, mm -hmm. Just the size. The running back is, for my son's high school football team, the running back's bigger than all the linebackers on my high school football team. Right. Yeah, and they start building up at a young well, age. Oh, huge, huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to get them involved at four or five years old if you really are serious. And, right. it, and so you watch the NFL on TV and you can look up to those athletes. You can idolize those athletes. But the, the idea that you could actually be one of those athletes is impossible for, like I said, almost everybody. Right. But when you watch a UFC fight, a mixed martial arts match, you can just go down the street to the gym and start taking jujitsu, start taking Muay Thai, start taking kickboxing, whatever it may be. And you just got to show up and do it. And you can enter into tournaments. There's lots of tournaments now for all of those different mm -hmm. martial arts. There's yeah, martial arts competitions. Whatever. Sure. Exactly. So there's all these opportunities. And the thing about like jujitsu is that it was really Brazilian jujitsu was invented for, um, and forgive me for being politically incorrect, but for women and old feeble people and small children and people with disabilities. That's because uh, Helio Gracie was an 135 pound asthmatic. Ah, gotcha. And he and he couldn't be involved in the other martial arts because he wasn't physically strong enough. Mm -hmm. And yet when he was taught um, jujitsu by a Japanese man named Mieda, who brought this to Brazil, all of a sudden this was something he could do because it wasn't about size. It wasn't about strength. It wasn't about age or, or any of those things. It was about technique. Yeah. And, leverage and really not and stamina either, right? As far as Oh, huge stamina. No, lots of stamina. In yeah. fact, his, his asthma was improved and he, he actually... Um, 
lived without a lot of asthmatic problems because of jujitsu. Oh, gotcha. Because it taught him, it strengthened his lungs. It, it got him great cardio and stamina. It taught him how to breathe correctly. Mm-hmm. That's really one of the the, the basic tech things that you learn as a beginner in jujitsu is just learn how to breathe. And people look at you cross-eyed like, what? I know how to breathe. You're like, no, you don't know how to breathe actually, but you're going to learn how to breathe because I'm going to lay on top of you. <laughs> right. Or that 285 pound guy over there is going to come lay on your 135 pound frame and you're going to have to figure out how to, how to breathe. And that's one of the first things you have to learn. And same thing with Muay Thai. You have to learn how to breathe. Otherwise you're tense and you burn yourself out real fast and then you get knocked out. So breathing is really fundamental to any um, valid martial art. It's one of the building blocks, actually, the foundation. And you can just enter into it at any age. Uh, Helio Gracie rolled until he was 96 years old. Uh, There's not a lot of old men in Muay Thai. I'll give you that. But (laughs) that's because it's a much more violent martial art. And yet... So you watch the UFC, you can do that. You can just go down the street and do that. And depending on how deep you want to get involved in the sport, it, it just goes. It just goes. In fact, I'm 46. There's a, a mixed martial arts cage fighting regional league for people over 40 years old. Yeah. Right? Okay. Uh, I train a Muay Thai with a guy who's 61 years old, and he had his first Muay Thai match this summer at 61. Hmm. And there's other 61-year-old guys to compete against. So there's no – that's the thing I mean. Like, you look at the NFL – that's a very specific group of people that can do that. And even if you want yeah. to go out on a, on a weekend and play tackle football, right? that's a pretty, you know, you, you could. I think you're playing roulette with your physical health, but versus right. going into a gym and joining a martial art, studying a martial art and starting from the bottom. My six-year-old, my seven-year-old just started this past week mm-hmm. in jujitsu. So they're then with my 11-year-old now, and I can already see the change in them, in their attitude. Yeah. from just that short time. And so, it, yeah, it's a strange thing that... <laughs> How do we go get to, on this subject? I have no idea whatsoever. We just started and we just went in that direction. Mm. I, saw, I think we I said we are the Muay Thai podcast, or if I haven't already said that, we're the Muay Thai podcast. Mm. Eight limb, the, eight, the art of eight limbs, the art of eight weapons. <clears throat> we're coming at you. We're coming at you from every angle. But uh, no, it's just a, it's a evening segue here as we're warming up. Nice. But... Uh, <clears throat> I actually, I do have to make, uh, I have to repent of last week because last week, oh, for, no. for whatever reason, I said John Kleining wrote The Spirituality of the Cross, which isn't true. Um, Gene Veith wrote The Spirituality of the Cross. And uh, to to apologize to Gene, because I've listened to both John and Gene. Uh, I know John and Gene. They don't look the same. They don't talk the same. No. They no. don't lecture the same. They don't write on the same topics. And yet, somehow, at that moment, I confused mm. Gene Veith with John Kleinig. So I thought we would introduce readers to uh, Gene Veith. He's a wonderful man, and I think he's a wonderful man anyways. Uh, really solid theologian. Uh, not a pastor. Layman. He yeah, is a layman, layman exactly. Right. What is it? Provost and professor of literature emeritus at Patrick Henry College and director of the Cronach mm-hmm. Institute at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, author of God at Work and Spirituality of the Cross. There you go. Yeah, so check those out for sure. We'll uh, a regular blogger, too. Very regular. He blogs for... Um, what is this? How he's do you on pronounce? Pathios, right? He's on Pathios. That's what I was thinking of. What's how do you pronounce Legion? Is it Legionier? 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 Just a really weird way of Legionier Ministries or Legionier Ministries Inc. He writes for them. Writes for I think, but he has his own Pathios blog. Mm-hmm. He writes weekly, sometimes several times a week, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, or multiple times a day if something's going on. Yeah, he's also a collector of of stories and topics, but Gene's primarily interested in vocation. 
and vocation of the cross and specifically and how the cross comes to bear in our vocations. So if you want to understand vocation, Lutheran vocation, or you want to talk about two kingdom stuff, Gene Veith is the guy to, to read about, especially God at Work. Yeah. Because God at Work is about Christian vocation and really comes from a lot of his blog posts and a lot of things he's been talking about for a while now. And I don't know, I think, I've said this before, but I don't think we talk nearly enough about the relation of baptism, the cross, and voca- to vocation. And this is why then when people do run into trouble in their vocations, whether they make a mess of their life or someone else comes in and makes a mess or whether there's some sort of mental or spiritual affliction, whatever it may be, uh, for myself as a pastor anyways, this really is the majority of the conversations I have with people. I remember remember the uh, first Bible class I was given to teach that was uh, field work when I was at seminary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just, I suggested, hey, I'll just do a thing on vocation because John Plus had uh, introduce the topic at the sem, and I say, oh, fine, I'll try to teach it. Well, anytime you try to teach something, you have to learn it, right? Exactly. <laughs> or you learn it as you're teaching or whatnot. It was supposed to be, I think, four or six-week class. We ended up going pretty much the whole year because uh, you start just digging into, like, using the table of duties and just each vocation that um, that Luther outlines there. Uh, you can spend quite a bit of time. There's usually a lot of practical questions, Right. Yeah, right. You know, how does your life, how how does your faith play out, you know, in your life in this, in this arena, in this realm, you know? Well, that's the thing. So. We were in the Galatians Bible study the other night, and the same thing, that when you're talking, especially I think when you read the epistles, again, mm-hmm. just my opinion, but when you read the epistles in particular, it's real easy, I think, to get abstract and yeah. treat like Galatians like it's a, um, a book of mathematics or hmm. business ethics or something that... If you don't ground it in in pragmatic reality, if you don't get the subtext of a lot of what's happening, like in when we're in Sunday morning Bible study, we're in First Kings, and I talk about the subtext of Elijah staying with this woman, this widow, and her son in her house. Yeah, and Levitically awkward. speaking, it doesn't, right? It's awkward, <laughs> socially awkward, and regardless of how old Elijah was at the time, and how old old the widow at Zarephath is, and how old her kid is. Levitically speaking, socially speaking, single men of any age, they aren't family or your husband, or they don't do that. Mm-hmm. It's just not, it, in fact, to this, in traditional cultures to this day, they're like, I can't go to a Mexican woman's house when her husband's not there. Right. Because it's not, it's considered completely improper to be alone with a married woman and mm-hmm. a married man, and especially the pastor. And for Americans, that might seem odd that a man and woman can't be alone together in the middle of the day. What, what, could possibly go wrong. What's so bad about that? But in a majority of the world, actually, 90% of the world, that's a no-no. Right. And I think it's a great rule, actually, mm-hmm. ethically and morally speaking, because even if you're not doing anything, hey, now there's no opportunity for gossip. There's no opportunity for backbiting and finger pointing and speculation about what are pastor and, and so-and-so's wife doing talking for two hours in the middle of the afternoon. Right. Um, I remember uh, talking to a missionary to the Hmong people. Yeah. And he was telling uh, telling us that uh, it was like a class setting. He was telling us that he wouldn't baptize you know, children or or a mother without the father and husband present, sure. uh, even if he wasn't converting. Uh, so so he'd invite him to church. He didn't have to he, he didn't have to participate apart from just be there, right? Be with his right. family, even if his family was converting Christianity. He did obviously. He, he, if he wasn't, that was a, that was fine. Um, but he needed him there, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, because of the, the strong family 
oriented, you know, nature of their culture. Yeah. So. Right. Exactly. And mm-hmm. that's what I mean by then when you when you're teaching the Bible, uh, not just teaching the theology right. or the doctrine, which is appealing to us as pastors. That's you know we're all frustrated wannabe theology professors, seminary professors, mm-hmm. deep guess, in our heart, yeah. in our heart, somewhere deep, deep in the recesses of our heart. And as a consequence, we loved the theology. We loved the doctrine, talking about law and gospel, two kingdoms, justification, all this stuff. But I think often we fly over the heads of a lot of our members because we expect <laughs> them to be seminary trained theologians, and they're just not. And they're sitting there staring at you, smiling and going, yeah, I know what you're saying is important and we're listening. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, probably we don't have any idea what we're talking about either. Well, there is that. (laughs) There is that. (laughs) It sounds really good at the time. Right. (laughs) Go back and listen to it. Like, I don't know what that meant. (laughs) My my maxim is if I can't teach it to a five-year-old, then I probably don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And if I can teach it to a five-year-old, I can teach it to a Mm 50-year-old. But if a 50-year-old nods his head and says, I get it, and then I go to teach it to the Sunday school and they look at me with complete confusion, Mm -hmm. then I know somebody's, there's a disconnection somewhere. Yeah. And I need to go back to the drawing board. And so with Galatians, it's the same thing is nailing down what exactly is so foolish about this bewitchment that's been dropped on these Galatians. And what are the actual consequences of what Paul is arguing for? Especially nowadays when I, whatever, you can Google this, but there's apparently over 20,000 Christian groups in the world now or 24,000 or something. I, I thought know. maybe it was like two or 3,000 different groups, but no, it's over 20,000 different Christian groups in the world now. Everything from two or three people sitting in some storefront to a cathedral in Rome. That, I thought about starting my own Senate. It just seemed like, you know, pivot into that now, you know? Right, exactly. How many churches do you need? I mean, I got one right here. It's in my house. You know, that's enough, right? Exactly. Just, just start a new splinter group. We'll call it the... Uh, the super orthodox brethren of the something or other. Right. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like it. You like it? Of the yeah, something you know, or other? Yeah. Run with it and see what happens. And I would yeah. keep the something or other just to keep people <laughs> on their toes. Well, you know, we don't want to exclude anybody. <laughs> so. All right. Here we go. Facts and stats on 33,000 denominations. Oh, my. According to the World Christian Encyclopedia, as of 2001, there are 33,000 plus total Christian denominations. And denomination is an organized Christian group within a specific. Hmm. So there are 33,000 plus Christian groups in the world right now. So if you wonder why people are confused or people think that there can be different gospels or different kinds of worship or different kinds of church, Hmm. whatever, it's because there's over 33,000 options. And this is the thing, I think, coming back around then, that because we don't, I think, focus on vocation in relation to our Bible studies, in relation to our pastoral vocation, or just Christian vocations, we don't take time to dig into what the Bible has to say about baptism and the cross in relation to vocation. Yeah. When things happen to people in their vocations that they cannot comprehend, that's the big question, like we said. Why is this happening to me? Mm -hmm. Where is God? And those questions come out of a disconnect between the first commandment, baptism, and their vocation. Where is fear, love, and trust broken loose in your life in such a way that you've been cut off from your baptismal promises? Yeah. And that's usually happens in terms of the vocation. You know, I'm sure there's yeah, plenty of people who can lose their faith in church, but more than often than not, it's in vocation that these things happen. Right, and it, it really does sabotage the ability of, of, of a congregation or individual Christians 
to suffer, to be, to, to have, you know, any kind of burden. You know, we have this pain avoidance culture, right? Right. I mean, well, this, we po- this post-enlightenment uh, idea that pain and suffering are evil. Yeah, right. They need to be eliminated. Right. But there's no character building then. <laughs> well, and this goes back to what we started off talking about, though, is that when you eliminate struggle, for example, mm-hmm. you it is through struggle that we learn about ourselves. It's through struggle that we are humble. It's through struggle that we are physically and mentally improved upon. We better ourselves. And the reason that I want my kids to be involved in things like jujitsu and martial arts is because of the intangibles. It's not the the only I want them to learn how to take care of themselves and defend themselves mm-hmm. and others. Mm-hmm. It's that they learn respect and humility and patience and sacrifice and all of these intangibles, these character well, and, and their weaknesses, right? And yeah. it, you know, yeah. we have a saying that um, I'm trying to see how it's politically correct how I can say this, but um, <laughs> it ju- jujitsu is a filter. Let's put it that way. Mm, it's a filter. Yeah. And what it filters out are the worst parts of you. Your, mm-hmm. The parts of your so-called ego, for example, your the things that you're attached to, your pride, um, you 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 the way that you fool yourself into believing you're strong when you're weak, or you believe you're weak when you're right. strong. Those kinds of things. It draws yeah, all that out. Pride. And so yeah. you do. You see people in jujitsu, for example, that they believe they're weak, they believe they're timid, they come in, they're scared, and then within six months they're lion and they're a lion, a lioness. And likewise, you get people come in who think that they're strong and that they're tough and they have what it takes and they leave after two or three classes because it's shown to them that they're not who they thought they were. Mm-mm. And if you remove that affliction from people's life and they don't go through those challenges, those things don't usually happen. You can't just sit on your couch watching Netflix and eating Doritos and have an epiphany about <laughs> your true self <laughs> or what part aspects of your personality you're clinging to that are really destructive for relationships or to yourself or why is it that you can't sit still in church and listen to your pastor's sermon on Sunday? What's getting in the way of that? And yeah. what excuse have you made for not going to church on that? Like, well, you already you already got the trophy, right, to prove that right, you're, exactly. you were a Christian. You know, whenever that was, I guess your confirmation. Right. You know, and you like got, you said, we you got your autographed Bible and you know, with your name on well, the cover. And <laughs> this is why we've created this hierarchy of value around vocation. And you'll notice mm-hmm. the hierarchy, this hierarchy value system of vocation is the less dirty you have to get, the higher the value of the vocation. Mm. So if I say I'm an architect, hey, all right, congratulations. That's yeah, a lot of work. Awesome. But if I say I'm a plumber, oh, not mm. didn't didn't do good in school, couldn't get into a college. Mm. Um, which person is more necessary, vocationally speaking, when things go bad? Yeah. I, I need the plumber. I do. I need him a lot more often than I need an architect. And I would argue that the plumber's vocation is much more noble than the architect's vocation hmm. in the sense or, of... Or maybe that, I mean, I don't know. Value in the immediate sense. sense. In the immediate sense. If we're going to use a value hierarchy, I would put the plumber at the top and not the architect. Yeah, running water over... Uh, right. I'm glad that you can design that bridge or, you know, an engineer, <laughs> an architect can design a bridge or a skyscraper not to fall down. But I, I need my toilet snaked. <laughs> Right. right now, my kids my kids overflowed the toilet because they used an entire roll of toilet paper mm-hmm. just to see if Been they could do that. it. Right, right. Your yep. kids, your kids go. I wonder what else I could fit down this hole. <laughs> and you hear flush, and then three minutes later, flush, and three minutes later, flush. And you go in. What are you doing? I can't get flashback. <laughs> like, honey, what else is down there? Superman, Batman, <laughs> Green Lantern. <laughs> We had we had one toilet plug with a with a bath toy that uh, we actually had to just 
smash the toilet to get the toy out. Oh, no. We were just curious what toy would, could yeah. possibly have plugged right. it so seriously. And it was the perfect round diameter. Sure. That it was just the absolute perfect plug. And if you tried to snake it, it actually yes. it put it in tighter. Isn't it, and it, kids it are amazing that way. That wedged in there it's so the well. same thing with sticking stuff up their nose. Kids just seem to inherently know <laughs> the the perfect size of an object and where to stick it to plug something up. Because my seven year old used to do that with these little round Legos. <laughs> they were little round Legos that were the exact size of his nostril opening. Mm. And awkward. It, I, Right. So the ER nurse knew us super well. And it got to the point where we had to scold them because they had this little vacuum thing that they used to suck it out with. And he thought that was hilarious. So he would <laughs> shove stuff up his nose just to, Well, he would shove stuff up his nose just so that we could take him to the ER so he could mm-hmm. get that machine used on him, right? Yeah. So you just take it off his tab when he, you know, he starts right, working. Yeah, that's right. Say, but, okay, now we're deducting all of those strips from your paycheck. That's right. Can we have one of those vacuum cleaners for our house? Do you have a portable hmm. no, nostril vacuum? But yeah. anyways, point being, when you remove suffering and struggle from a person's life, and I don't mean suffering in the sense of um, self-destructive behavior, self-harm, or yeah. letting somebody else walk all over you and hurt you physically, emotionally, psychologically. I mean, suffering in the sense of entering into something that causes you to have to struggle, whether it's a hike through the mountains, whether it's jujitsu, whatever it is that's, that physically is testing you, mm-hmm. um, jogging, whatever it may be. When you, especially for kids, you take that stuff away and they don't have that challenge. They don't have that struggle. They don't really have a sense of accomplishment. They don't have a sense of a reward. They don't have a sense that what they've done, they've earned, and they can be proud of it because they've achieved something for themselves. And mm-hmm. in the struggle itself, they've learned so much about themselves and so much about other people in the world that you take that away. And we work as a culture, we work insistently upon this to remove, to nerf the world that I don't think we appreciate because most of the culture sees that as progress. Yeah. Whereas I would see that as a digression. Um, yeah. Because we've removed the need to figure out who you are. Yeah. When, what happens, yeah, when you come up against a situation, whether whatever it is, physical, mental, right. you know, emotional struggle right. uh, or difficulty, you have – you have you lack the basic skills right. to to actually deal with it. One hundred percent. It's like uh, I tell people I train six days a week normally, five days, six days a week in jujitsu, muay thai, and mixed martial arts, and that means that every day I'm showing who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm whether I want to know that or not about myself. I am forced to see something about myself that I don't want to deal with, and I'm forced to deal with it. So then, when I decide I'm going to buy a new house, <laughs> and the house I'm going to buy is five hundred thousand dollars. Because I deserve that house. And I think I, I, can, I can make the payments. Well, what going and training in mixed martial arts six days a week has shown me is the reason you're saying that is because it's, you want it, but you don't need it. And you don't have the means to purchase that. Yeah. And really, you're just letting your ego and this little voice in your head that's saying, but those guys, you know, the guy over there that you know, he has a $500,000 house. You deserve one of these and you can do this. You just got to work a couple extra hours. And rather than follow that path that's going to lead me into bankruptcy, Hmm. I stop before I even have that thought because I've already struggled through the types of things about me, my thinking and my behavior that lends itself towards that kind of self-destructive decision-making. So Hmm. now I just don't make those kind of self-destructive decisions, or at least I'm aware that I'm about to make one of them because I put myself through such suffering and struggle. 
yeah. that it's Been forced there, done me. That. Exactly. Yeah. And so rather than enter into needless struggle and needless suffering, I just look at it and go, yeah, I don't need that. Mm-hmm. Right? What do I need? What do I need to be satisfied? What do I need to be subjectively happy? What do I need to go to bed at the end of the day and say, it's enough? Mm-hmm. And for me, it's three things, my, my family, my church, and my training, my training mm-hmm. partners. That's all I need. Yeah. Everything else, the size of your, my house, how many cars I have, the size of my congregation, the building, all of that to me is just consequence. It's of no consequence to me whatsoever. It's like, if, as long as yeah. I'm with my family, I can live in a van. I don't care as long as I'm with my family. Uh, yeah. It as might be as, kind of fun even. <laughs> for, a, for a time, it might be kind of fun. Um, I would probably yeah. move to a warmer climate so we could be outside most of the day. Oh, but yeah, that's right. Likewise, I don't well, care they, what size my church is. I don't care if I have three people in church on Sunday or three million people in church on Sunday. Yeah, It's, it's enough that I get to preach the gospel. That, and then it, should the it should be. Right. It should be. Yeah. And it's nice to get paid too, though, by the way. It is really nice to love my neighbor in that way. Uh, <laughs> my kids need clothes, for example. Yeah. Um, but then again, like I said, it wasn't the, and I know this is probably blasphemy to some people listening, but it wasn't the church that made me a better person. It's not mm. the church that made me a better husband, a better father, a better neighbor. It's, it's actually martial arts that have made me a better man. Yeah. And this is what I mean about talking about vocation more openly is that we can fall into this American evangelical understanding of vocation that is, well, you can identify who a Christian is by how what they're doing. And oh, right. The you, you real spir- Christians are the, right. the ones you, who are the hands and feet of exactly. Jesus. Exactly. You, you spiritualize vocation, right? And, mm-hmm. and again, you create a hierarchy of value, but instead of a hierarchy of value based on what you can get materially from that. An architect can obviously afford to live in a bigger house. Well, a successful architect can live in a nicer house in a nicer neighborhood than maybe say the plumber. But again, depending on the plumber and the architect, but just Mm -hmm. in general. Um, And likewise, then we judge Christians that way. If we, if we misunderstand vocation that, well, he's doing a real Christian work over there. That's a real Christian vocation, but what she's doing, that's not a legitimate Christian vocation. And we create this hierarchy of spiritual value then. And, much like the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee and the tax collector in the parable. Oh, yeah. And then we go to church and say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him, hmm. that plumber or, or her, that bartender or whatever it may be. They're not really doing Christian work. And we fall into this American evangelical understanding of vocation, and we completely miss the point that the purpose of vocation is that set free through justification, we're now free to love our neighbor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... For me, anyways, uh, loving my neighbor includes wanting to be a better husband, a better father, and a better neighbor. Mm-hmm. And that I know that nothing that I do, better or worse, is going to affect my salvation. That's by faith alone. But it, I do know in my vocation that I can become a more loving person, a more compassionate and kind person, and a more charitable person by getting out of my own head, mm, getting yeah. getting away from fixating on the desires of my flesh, as Paul calls them. And the way for myself, and I'm not a prescribing this for anybody, but the way that I've found that door opened up is through pr- training in martial arts. That, mm-hmm. That's for me is the struggle that I've chosen to enter into that's really said, no, this is actually who you are. You're not this guy, you're that guy. Mm-hmm. And my wife has noticed it, my kids notice it, people at my congregation notice it. Uh, I'm a different person. Mm-hmm. And the point though is that I don't fixate on how different of a person I am or how better I am because I'm enjoying so much what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And it translates then into love for others. And that has only come about through struggle. 
And that's why I say, if, if we don't go through those struggles, if we don't push ourselves, if we don't give ourselves to something, give ourselves to someone in service to something other than ourselves, we become super self-involved. And that's what I see American evangelicalism and this understanding of vocation as being, well, you have to do something that's specifically Christian. Yeah. To be in this vocation, if it's not a Christian vocation, you can only listen to Christian music, you can only watch Christian movies, you can only read Christian magazines, listen to Christian podcasts, you have to go to a specific kind of church, so on and so on, otherwise you're not a real Christian. Versus, well, uh, vocation, properly speaking, is that you're poured out for your neighbor, (laughs) that you're to love your neighbor as yourself and love God. And how are you doing that if all you're focusing on is yourself? Yeah. Well, part of the problem is that um, there's this prescribed kind of destination or mm-hmm. or goal, right? And and but it's not it's not internal to you. It's it's imposed upon you, right? So it's right. Like, here's how you know when you've really arrived as a Christian. You know, your life's yeah, going right. to look like this, uh, which is pretty presumptuous on the, <laughs> on the one hand. You know, and, it assumes yeah, you're in and, control first of all. Well, and, and like like we said before, not everybody's going to be equipped with the same um, gifts you know, mm-hmm. skills or whatever, or, or even ability, right. you know, to gain, you know, skill. Right. Um, so why would you presume to know what's going to be best, you know, for someone else right. um, and for them, you know, to serve their neighbor? So right. And this is a point Dr. Luther makes quite often that if the Holy Spirit let us see our good works, we would immediately take credit for them, yeah. which is why the Holy Spirit hides our good works from us. And this is Dr. Luther at his most controversial, I think, for modern Lutherans, when Dr. Yeah. Luther says that the works of a Christian and a non-Christian are indistinguishable <laughs> in relation to the world. And right. that in relation to God, yeah, there's a difference. But in relation to the world, there is no difference whatsoever between the works of a Christian and non-Christian. And a Christian can do something that appears to be charitable for completely selfish and evil means, reasons. And a non-Christian can do something that appears to be selfish and self-seeking for completely altruistic means. Right. But you don't know the motives of a person's heart. You don't know their true intent. And even if they were to say it to you, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to understand it or receive it in the way that they intend it to be heard. And I think that's a big problem that we have, just broadly speaking, as people, but as Christians in particular, is this theory of free will and choice. That And this is especially toxic for Christians to believe that we have a choice in relation to our salvation mm-hmm. or – and really a choice in relation to our vocation. That's we, true I mean, too. We have limited choices in relation to vocation. Uh, if you it's don't, funny. But, I mean we try to, we try to yeah. avoid it with um, uh, romantic entanglements, right? Because we yes. say we fall into love. So yeah, of course. As if it's, it's, it's apart from our will. Which, right, which right. Kind She's of my soulmate. No, the Holy Spirit would be your soulmate. (laughs) (laughs) He literally occupies space in your soul. But right, that once you get off on the wrong street, side street with in relation to vocation, there it has very severe practical consequences for the rest of your life. Because then you'll say, "But Pastor Riley, how can Mm. you be in mixed martial arts? How can you get into a ring or a cage and fight with other people? How is that loving your neighbor?" Yeah. Well, have you done it? <laughs> Do you understand the the intimacy and the bonds that happen as a consequence of trusting someone with your life? Yeah. You know, I trust someone with my health and well-being. I don't even know their last name. Best friend I ever had, you know, Ron Swanson. Mm. But my <laughs> best friends are people I don't know almost I know almost nothing about their personal life, but they're some of the best friends I have. Mm. And I would trust them implicitly with my children. Because 
I've, I've rolled with them. I've sparred with them. I know who mm. they are as a person on a deep, mm. deep level that's way beyond thinking and emotions because I've given them my health and well-being and they've handed it back to me. And they've done the same with me. And that kind of transaction of literally giving yourself to another person, your health and well-being, and then they give it back to you at the end of five minutes, that's an, a, an intensely intimate relationship. And this is another thing, right, that culturally speaking, we, we hypersexualize relationships, especially between men. Like two men yeah. cannot be f- deep, intimate friends on a platonic level. It's got to be something else. And I think this is what scares men away from being quote unquote, intimate with other men of being honest and open and sharing and confessing to other men what, what they're going through because they're afraid of appearing whatever, not a man mm. versus there's platonic relationships that are deeply intimate. Just talk with soldiers coming back from war. You talk with fighters yeah. who train together. You talk with fighters who fight each other, who, mm-hmm. who go in that cage to, to knock each other's heads off. And then afterwards they're hugging and congratulating each other and saying, he's just the best guy. He's a stand-up guy. He's a wonderful guy. I have nothing but respect for him. And how is that possible? Well, unless you've actually done it, you can't possibly understand it. You, yeah, you can, maybe, maybe I'm, though. I mean, I, would you say that- I just that, don't believe it. In theory, you can. But unless you've walked through that fire, I don't believe you can appreciate it. I, I think it's a lot, I would guess, it's a lot easier to, to fake you know, an emotional uh, connection or- Mm-hmm. you know, an intellectual one, but a physical one, I mean, it's kind of hard to fake the intimacy right. of a fight, right? I mean, you right. No, you I can't mean, do if you, it. if you impossible. fake it, it, you're going to be exposed. <laughs> well, you're not, knocked if out. You're not, yeah, exactly. If you're not in, if you're not all in, right. Uh, if you're not putting the effort in, it's, right. it's obvious. Right. Well, it's like asking, do you know how to throw a punch? And if they don't, but they say yes, because they're ashamed of not knowing how to throw a punch. And so you expect them to put their glove up and they don't, so you punch them right in the face and knock them out. And then you say, was that, what happened? I'm sorry, what, how, I'm sorry, are you okay? What happened? And then they say, well, to be honest, I don't really know how to throw a punch. I don't really know how to block a punch. Mm. Well, I could have, I could have given you a concussion. I could have broken your jaw. Yeah. Because I thought you said you knew what you were doing. So f- the consequences for, for not being honest are in, immediate and profound. Yeah. And it's like I was talking with a friend when I used to rock climb. And above 20 feet, you're, you're doomed if you fall because you're probably going to die. So once you get past 20 feet, you're fully committed to the side of the, to the mountain. And when you're halfway, you, you're not turning around. Like, there's no turning around once you're halfway up a mountain. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to trust your partner. You've got to trust the carabiners and the rope and everything, the belay, everything. Uh, there's no going back down. <laughs> Because that's an, a long, arduous process if you wanted them to lower you all the way back down. And yet so many people, they clear that first 20 feet and think, I'm going to make it all the way to the top. Because they're not being honest with themselves about their physical capabilities, their technical capabilities, their skill yeah. level. Yeah. And those are the people that get hurt. I was listening to Andy Stump. He's a former SEAL Team 6 Navy SEAL. And mm-hmm. he's one of the, um, he wears the wingsuits. He just broke the world's records for the highest jump like rocket jump or whatever it is. Oh, those like flying chipmunk suits? Yes. Oh, no, highest jump in a wingsuit. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was like the outer stratosphere. It was amazing, right? And mm. um, like 23,000 feet or something, well, whatever it was, Google it. But uh, he was talking about the only people that actually die from in parachuting accidents are people that do what they're not supposed to do. Mm. In, the, in 100% of these accidents, the parachutes aren't the thing that caused the accident. 
It's yeah. people being careless or people trying to do things that they're they're not capable of technically. Same thing he said with wingsuits, that any slight inch variation, any centimeter that you're, you miscalculate will send that wingsuit off in a different direction. It will cause it to do all kinds of weird things. And if you're not experienced and you don't know what you're doing, you'll die, period. Hmm. Hmm. There's no, there's very little forgiveness when these things go wrong. And so if you don't have the experience and the skill and the technical abilities to correct something when it goes wrong, you have no business being up there doing that. And yet so many people lie to themselves and say, no, I can do this. I can pull this off. Yeah. And as a consequence, the they, you know, right. In, in skydiving. The thrill he, without the work, right? He came out of his partner. Mm-hmm. He was going to grab his partner. He came at the wrong angle and he actually ripped his legs off. And uh, the guy that hit him, he died oh, because goodness. of shoulder and neck and head trauma. And all because he tried to do something that he technically was not capable of doing. And yet you would think with all the experience that he had, that he would know better. But in that moment, he wasn't honest with himself and it was, it was immediate. And so I can't even begin to appreciate what that must be like because I've never done it. And so rather than judge, I'd prefer to sympathize and empathize and ask, Hey, what happened? I need to find someone who can explain to me what happened because I can't understand that. And likewise, I tell people, don't judge me and what I do within the context of my vocation because now I have people that I train with, atheists, agnostics, and Christians coming to church on Sunday. And for whatever reason, I entered into it just because I've always, since I was 12 years old, I wanted to be in martial arts. And I finally got to do it at 46. So don't give up on your dreams, kids. Mm -hmm. But uh, (laughs) um, I learned that from the Care Bears. Hmm. (laughs) Remember the Care Bears cartoon? Yes. The, the little bears and they had the their emotions I think on their there's chest. A modern, and they would like reversion, you know. Re- no, there's not. Don't say that. That's blasphemy. Okay. <laughs> there's no such thing. Well, I think Netflix but, uh, is uh, launching a She-Ra series. That's yes, they are. In <laughs> fact, you. Oh yeah, don't even start. Oh jeez, wasn't good the first time. <laughs> that's <laughs> what I thought too. Oh Lord, have mercy. <sighs> but that's what I mean. Is that too often as Christians we get wrapped up in what we're doing or what we're about. And then we look at someone who's not doing what we're doing and we say, well, what you're doing is wrong or what you're doing is sinful Mm -hmm. or what you're doing isn't sanctified living or it's not Christian. Well, again, you don't know their intent. You don't know their motive. You don't know what the Lord has in store. Elijah lives with a widow. (laughs) What do you think people thought about that? Jesus ate with prostitutes. What do you think about, you know, what do you think about a a culture that places a, a high emphasis on table fellowship? And here is the, the son of God eating with prostitutes. And again, I'm not saying he sinned. What I'm saying is socially, socially, the people that are looking at him, sitting at that picnic table with those prostitutes and eating with them, have one thought, which is, oh, we know what he's about. We know yeah, what he's about. He's one of those we, guys. We really know what he's after here. Mm-hmm. He's one of those guys. He's one of these gurus, these spiritual gurus who's just, he's, in a, he's scamming people is what he's after. And... We, in hindsight, get to look backwards and go, that's Jesus. He's just being Jesus, hmm. you know, those silly religious leaders. But you just replace Jesus with me in yeah. a modern context, and you you just go find those same religious leaders and have them come and see what I'm doing in the park at a picnic table with prostitutes. 100%, they're going to either say, he's evangelizing them, God bless him, or, oh, we really know what he's after. Versus I was just minding my own business and I sat down at this bench and this other woman came and sat down next to me and we just started talking and all of a sudden she said, oh, you're a pastor. And I said, oh, what do you do? And she said, oh, uh, 
technically I'm a street walker. And we just started talking. I started telling her about Jesus and why I believe in, in Jesus and he's the son of God. And she all of a sudden called over these other friends of hers who are prostitutes. And all of a sudden I'm sitting at a picnic table with prostitutes telling them about Jesus. Yeah. Awkward. We're at, <laughs> awkward, right? That, and you're sitting there at the curb saying, I can't believe he's sitting there with those people. Yeah. What, what could, that's not a Christian thing to do. That's not good. So I think we have to be much more humble mm-hmm. about this. And this again brings us back around to uh, on this loop of I, through struggle, you are humbled, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. I do not believe you can be humbled unless you go through a struggle, whether it's something immediate like the loss of a child mm-hmm. or burying a parent or a loved one or suffering from a disease that basically stops you dead in your tracks, that forces you to only focus on that disease, um, to, like I said, hiking, climbing, any kind of you know physically strenuous activity, uh, going out and digging in your garden, mm-hmm. whatever it may be, that forces you to confront who you are. Mm-hmm. And you don't you and, don't often have to pick it. I mean, <laughs> you'll receive right. it. Right, I know, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's really the nature of vocation. And yet, to bring it to the Veith article, I suppose we should read it eventually. Um, we are going to read Gene Veith's article. It's called Glory Versus the Cross <laughs> by Gene Edward Veith. You can, uh, we'll post a link to it. But um, what uh, we're going to read in Veith's uh, article is, when we have a false understanding of vocation, it leads us to what's called a theology of glory. And when we have a proper understanding of vocation, it's what makes us theologians of the cross, because it really is where the, the Holy Spirit works within the context of our vocations to kill the old Adam, to crucify our old Adam's flesh, and to raise a new person in Christ in his place. And like I said, in your vocation is where this usually happens. And I have just chosen to willingly crucify the old Adam. Uh, I always laugh when in jiu-jitsu there's a, there's a technique called the crucifix. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, so... I try not to get caught in it. It's just a little too close to home. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was for somebody this else, is really not the, for me. <laughs> right, exactly. Give me the electric chair of the Texas Twister, but leave me alone with that crucifix. <laughs> but really, the difference between a theologian of glory and a theologian of the cross is this understanding of how does this happen within the context of vocation? How does baptism in the cross come to bear in relation to the various vocations that I've been given by the Lord? And like I said, often. I was told we could only have two kids. Our doctor said that my wife was not capable of having more children. We have five. <laughs> you know this. You you know this, right? That y- you say, Lord, I'm. I have two kids. I'm satisfied. And the Lord laughs and goes, Oh no, I'm not done. <laughs> right. You're gonna have five. Uh, and you go, But why, Lord? Mm-hmm. And he says, Because you need five. Why, Lord? Because you're you're a very sinful man, and uh, <laughs> we're gonna. It's got to be a big a big cross to slow you down. Yep. So, as, you know, people that, that don't have children, that don't want to have children, uh, you're small sinners. That's really what it's all about. You just, you, you don't need, you don't need a big crucifix. For those of us like Pastor Gillespie and, and me, who are yeah. big, profoundly sinful people, we need a lot of kids. Yeah. I mean, entirely <laughs> selfish. So, yeah. uh, I've got, you know, eight going on, nine others to, to feed, uh, plus mm-hmm. a spouse. So Exactly. It's hard. It, it does. It does kind of set your priorities. It does. It, it does make it difficult to think only about yourself for long periods of time. <laughs> That's true. It really. Even That's if true. you. If even if you go and lock the door to the study or the bathroom or the or whatever room you're in, they're going to find a way to break that door down or pick the oh, lock. I know. Or There's nowhere slip to hide. You, call you on your phone or text you or slip notes under the door. They'll get to you. They'll come <laughs> through a window. They'll break down a wall. They'll do what they need to do. But if you're sitting there at dinner with your kids and they're all eating ice cream and cake and you look around and go, I am a good dad. I am a great Christian father. Thank you. <laughs> I guarantee you you're a theologian of glory. Yeah. 
Yeah. And by the way, we're all theologians of glory is what I'm saying, mm-hmm. because we all do that. We all do that. Or we judge ourselves by our relationships. Our, you know, we, we let our relationships define our identity for us rather than baptism. And right. so you have a mom or a dad or a grandma or grandpa or a boyfriend or girlfriend or wife or kids or whatever it may be. Once you let them determine who you are as a person, your identity, things can get skewed really fast. Because again, it's not who you truly are. It's who other people tell you you're going to be for them. And which may or may not be true, but if you don't know who you are and you don't know that your true identity is as a baptized child of God, like I said, that can get real hinky real fast. And uh, so we're going to read an excerpt from this article on uh, glory versus the cross by Gene Edward Beeth and uh, kind of dig into this just a little bit. So he says, a, the- a theology of glory expects total success, finding all the answers, winning all the battles, and living happily ever after. Uh, yeah, we could just, that should be, <laughs> that you should just cross-stitch that and then. <laughs> frame it and put it on a wall. A theology Your best of, life now. Exactly. Yeah. A theology of glory expects total success, finding all the answers, winning all the battles, living happily ever after. Here's your it, trophy. Yeah. Exactly. Who doesn't want that life though? Who doesn't want that life? The theology of glory is all about my strength, my power, my works. A theologian of glory expects his church to be perfect and always to grow. If a mm. theologian of glory gets sick, he expects God to heal him. There you go. First full paragraph. Yes, exactly. So, for example, then, theology of glory is all about strength, all about power, all about works. But it's my, 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 my. And this is how things can go sideways, I think, to speak self-reflectively. If I think the purpose of me being involved with martial arts is to better myself so that because I'm better, my wife will love me more, my kids will love me more, my congregation will grow because people will be attracted to me, and it's all about me, and then I start telling you and our listeners and everybody else, well, you have to be a martial arts too. Because if you're not martial arts, then you can't be a winner like I am. And you can't have the success that I've had because da 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 And it's, it doesn't have to be martial arts. Just pick whatever your thing is that, that gives you pride, the thing that you do or, or whatever that makes you go, that was awesome. By the, by the way, uh, Coffee by Gillespie is my superpower. That's right. That's, that is your mutant superpower. <laughs> yeah. And if you drink it, uh, you might have superpowers too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And why wouldn't you? It's a magical bean. <laughs> but this is the difference, is that when when you talk about things like strength and power and works, do you talk mm-hmm. about them in relation to the Lord is my strength, the Lord is my power, mm-hmm. the Lord sets out my works for me, and therefore I am not to judge what is and what isn't a proper vocation for me because the Lord has laid this out for me. Right. And, and uh, it's the Lord's church. And yes, it's the Lord's he, church. He gives his dinner, his growth gospel. when and where he wills, right? Exactly. So mm-hmm. essentially every church body is a theologian, is populated with theologians of glory. Every congregation is populated with theologians of glory. Every house is populated with theologians of glory. Don't sit back and say, Ick, I don't want any of those things. A hundred percent, if you were offered these things, you would take them in a New York minute. <laughs> A theology of glory expects total success, finding all the answers, winning all the battles, and living happily. Who doesn't want those things? Unless you're a sadist. Yeah. Unless you're a sadist, right? Unless you like things like the reboot of the Care Bears or a new She-Ra on Netflix. What's wrong with you people? What's wrong? Although, again, the new Star... I will say the new Star Wars movies are superior in every way to... Definitely the clone would say Star Wars and half of Return of the Jedi, too, so... 
because I think Rogue One is is one of the best Star Wars movies. Like for me, it's one of the top three. Ah, uh, I just I, I love know. I like I it. I like it. I really appreciate it for what it is. I do. I think Force Awakens was better, but that's no. I agree, but I I just I think Rogue One is a really well done. It's not quite because it's not part of. You know what I'm saying? It's not, they're not bringing in all the old characters because they're afraid of no, doing something true. different. And yeah, it's a part of the continuity, but they're saying here are new characters that we haven't introduced before. Here's a storyline that is just made in passing in the first movie, et cetera, et cetera. And yet I wanted to know more mm-hmm. about yeah. the characters in that universe. I want to know more about those people. And I cared much more about, right. I cared much more about them than anybody in the trilogy, in the Clone Wars. And I cared more about them than uh-huh. Ewoks. But no, I, I love the new ones. I think they are superior. And this is like comic book movies. The thing that frustrates me about comic book movies and TV shows are people that read a couple mm. of the most popular in that, like Batman or Superman or X-Men or whatever it may be. They read like the most popular series in or runs by different authors or they read a graphic novel. But they don't understand s- superheroes yeah, as a genre. Of, of the they don't understand how to tell that story. The breadth, exactly. And you can tell when they really nail it and you can tell when they really make a mess of it. And more often than not, they make a mess of it. And I know you're going to be angry at me, but Joss Whedon made a mess of the Avengers. <laughs> I enjoy oh, them. Oh, yeah. Ultron's but almost again, unintelligible. As a movie. <laughs> you know, it's like him and Bane, like those two. Yeah, that's but, true. But Christopher Nolan's saving grace is that he's just an awesome director and writer mm-hmm. and surrounding himself with really talented people like Tom Hardy. Yeah. But nonetheless, the Dark Knight trilogy is a good example that's based on two or three graphic novel Batman type of runs. It's not based on the entire continuity of Batman, nor is it based on a, a bread understanding of Batman as a, as a heroic person or genre, right? In the superheroes genre. Same with the Avengers. Um, and I think this mm-hmm. is the thing, and I know this, this has actually has a point, but that when you think you understand something because you read the greatest hits and you're like, well, I know Prince. I've heard his greatest hits album. No, you don't know Prince. <laughs> don't tell me you know Prince because mm-hmm. you listen to Purple Rain. That's not how this works. You need to listen to his entire catalog. Don't tell me you know Prince. Um, but we all do that because we're all inveterate theologians of glory. Just give me the best. <laughs> I just want the best of everything. I don't want any of that, you know, the filler. I don't want to, I don't want Stevie Wonder after 1978. But that's just, I mean, I mean, I think, I do think we can be dogmatically opposed to greatest hits albums. I think that's, I would. I mean, Probably. what Journey's greatest hits? That's that's a solid one. Um, <laughs> I go ELO's greatest hits. That's a good one too. I I don't even. I don't think Boston. No, let's not tell, let's not have the conversation. <laughs> well, <laughs> like for some reason, when I was fourteen, I loved them, and, and now I listen to them the other day because my daughter. I, I've talked about this before. All my kids are getting into this kind, of, especially the seventies. Uh, yeah. So my daughter loves Journey now and uh, Michael Jackson and Prince and, and so forth. And my kids, you know, my son loves Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and whatnot, but. To to watch a child discover it and mm. see in them you're just like remembering how you discovered this stuff yeah. and and your fascination that my daughter doesn't want to listen to Prince's greatest hits she wants to listen to everything he ever did and it's my responsibility as a parent to not let her listen to everything he ever did until she's an adult mm. but nonetheless with Journey for example it's a little bit safer a little kid more child friendly um, she doesn't want to listen to just the greatest hits of Journey now I played the greatest hits for her now she wants to listen to their whole catalog she wants to be exposed to all of it you know I can't escape the Beatles to save my life and we have now evolved to watching the movies 
Ah, gotcha. so Documentary. so this weekend, yeah. I no, I mean the movies. I will be watching Help. Oh, Help. And A Hard Day's Night this weekend. Hard Day's Night. Because I dumbly said, oh, those are on YouTube. (laughs) So now we will be watching all... uh, My daughter's favorite movie is Across the Universe, which is a a movie that's told entirely through Beatles lyrics. And it's actually a great movie. I love the movie. Uh, As far as musical goes, it's definitely uh, tolerable. And the musicians, they all sing and it's wonderful. And if you're a Beatles fan, that's, you're like, wow, that's a really great reimagining of the Beatles catalog. As far as musicals go. That's yeah, exactly. Well, it, my wife loves them. <laughs> and uh, it, I think I've talked about this before, that my wife loves musicals, but I know more musicals than my wife, and I don't know how that happened. Hmm. I, av- I avoid musicals, and yet I know, I know HMS Pinafore. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I know, I, I know all these musicals. I know the songs from these musicals. I can sing along with them, but I don't know how because I've never actually sat and watched an entire musical in my entire life. So I don't know no, if I just I picked just, that I up just from popular Howard, culture. I have this picture of Howard Keel in my eyes now. And I'm, I'm just... Well, I think I learned Pirates of Penzance <laughs> from um, The Simpsons because Sideshow Bob is going to murder. Remember this episode where he's going to no. murder uh, Bart? And he says, any last request? And Bart says, I want you to sing the entire... Um, uh, the entirety of uh, Pirates of Penzance, HMS Pinafore. And uh, so Sideshow Bob does because Bart knows the bridge is coming and gets knocked out by the bridge. But I think that's how I actually know that musical because Sideshow Bob sang, I'm the very model of a modern major general. And it just stuck. So whenever I sing it, I see Sideshow Bob in my head and I hear Kelsey Grammer singing it to me. Classic episode. YouTube it. Simpsons actually used to be good, people. I don't know if you're aware of that. <laughs> It used to be must-watch must TV. Yeah, so, also predicted uh, Disney buying 20th Century Fox. That's right. They did, for sure. Isn't that wild? That's <laughs> and so Donald weird. Trump being president. So, that too, you know, exactly. Yeah, prescient people. Prescient people. So this is what happens then with the theologian of glory, is that we're the greatest hits only mm, kind of person. Right. So when I come success. to church... Only success. Only success. So when I come to church on Sunday, Pastor Sermon better be another Grand Slam, and the music better be on point. And as I've made the comment before, when I leave church, I want to be able to say my pastor, I can, I can leave church feeling good. I feel good leaving church. I feel better leaving the church on Sunday. Really? What, what's your measure of, of that? Well, you, yeah. didn't, you didn't cause me to suffer or struggle. You didn't challenge me. Which is interesting, because how does one preach the law without challenging someone? Yeah. So nonetheless, these... Kind of lamely, right? Where they're well, just gummed to death, that, right? Exactly, gummed to death by a million guppies. <laughs> just the cranky old mother-in-law coming to check her china, make sure it's not chipped. I gave <laughs> you that wedding china, it better not be chipped. Uh, and this is what Vith is saying. A theologian of glory wants total success. All He wants to know all the answers. He wants to win every battle. He wants to live happily ever after. All he cares about is my, 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 my. Mine, 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 <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of classic movies, a theologian gets sick. He expects God to heal him. I knew people when I was in the mission field that they would never go to a doctor because they believed if they just prayed enough, God oh, would heal them. So that's where the faith healing thing comes Exactly. From. That it's a matter of faith that they're still sick, not the fact that there's bacteria operating inside their body that's killing them. Speaking of, uh, I'm drinking pomegranate lemonade kombucha tonight. Pomegranate lemonade may sound odd, but it's delicious. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's Hum H U M M brand. Mm-hmm. It's you get it at tough. Target. Yes, you can. It's delish. I think we promoted that before. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so next paragraph. 
If the theologian of glory experiences failure and weakness, if his church has problems and if he is not healed, then he is often utterly confused. He's questioning the sufficiency of his faith and sometimes questioning the very existence of God. Ta-da! Think of it practically speaking. When you tell people why you believe in Jesus and why you think they need to come to church on Sunday, how many of them use this actual justification for why they don't believe in God and why they don't come to church? Meaning, very common. Yeah, I don't believe God. I don't believe in a God that would allow X to happen. Or, well, I prayed when I was a child and nothing ever happened. Or, so and so got sick, and I got down on my hands and knees and I prayed, and God didn't heal this person. Or, I went to church until I was fifteen years old, and you know what? Never struck down by the Spirit. Never had a spiritual awakening. Never had an yeah. epiphany and aha moment. Theologian of the glory. Theologian yeah. of the glory. And that's natural religion, right? Of course that's it is. What we yeah. want. Of course. I mean, why would we why would we involve ourselves in any kind of religious activity if it didn't gain us something, right? Exactly. And then you know? multiply that by you live in a culture that tells you that struggle and suffering and not feeling good about yourself is bad. It's yeah. a moral it literally yeah, a moral take, evil. Yeah, just take your exactly. opium derivative and you'll be fine. Exactly. Exactly. Do you know the average 76-year-old is on over six prescription medications? Believe it. It's amazing. It's just amazing. But Luther pointed out when God chose to save us, he did not follow the way of glory. Uh-oh. He did not come as a great hero king, defeating his enemies, establishing a mighty kingdom on earth. Rather, he came as a baby laid in an animal trough, a man of sorrows with no place to lay his head. And he saved us by the weakness and shame of dying on a cross. Those who follow him will have crosses of their own. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. There you go. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, which we read as a justification of free will (laughs) and choice. And then we go out and look for a Christian cross to take up, like giving up chocolate for Lent. But he does say, let him deny himself. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Deny yourself. Deny myself what? everything that's not the cross of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Period. Oh, and by the way, follow him. <laughs> yeah. Because when you take up your cross, you will be killed. That's that's what a cross is. I, mean, this I think is, that's it. This is not, obviously it's not a, it's a literal cross for most people. It's not, right? Right. But Well, think about it this it way is, too. It just struck me that when, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, um, we don't actually think of that as an execution stake. Mm-mm. We don't think of that as sit down in your electric chair and follow me. We think of it literally because look at the, think of all the artwork where, that depicts a Christian carrying a cross. Those crosses are carried by living people. And the expectation is that carrying your cross will improve your life because you're suffering as Christ suffered. But you Except don't... you're going to end up on Golgotha. <laughs> right. That's the point is that the, 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 what the... Artwork does not depict as the end of that walk, which is Golgotha, like you said, but rather that the end of the walk is glory, heavenly rewards. I'm going to get my crown. I'm going to get my Cadillac. I'm going to get to eat pork forever. You know, that kind of stuff. Jesus bought my Cadillac. That the whole purpose of suffering is so you can get the reward at the end. This is why in liberation theology in the 70s and 80s, there's a theologian named Jürgen Moltmann who wrote a book called Crucified God. And the first half of it's great and definitely worth reading. The second half is garbage because Mm -hmm. what he does is he takes Christ crucified, flips that and says, when we suffer and we're oppressed, our suffering is salvific. 
Meaning if we suffer as Christ suffered, that in and of itself is salvific. And that's where I obviously disagree with him because my cross and my suffering is not salvific. I'm not going to be mm-hmm. saved because I suffer for somebody else. I'm saved through Christ's suffering and death because he did it for me in my place. He's my substitute. So I don't have to suffer and die in order to save myself. And yet, Right, but your, your suffering will... Um, kill you. God, yeah, it'll, God uses that to, to bring you to the despair of your own self. Right? Exactly, exactly. Your own righteousness, right. your own works, and all that. Which yeah. in, the, which in the, the era of modern psychoanalysis is, is a bad thing too, because you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't have a negative self-attitude uh, or, or self-worth. You shouldn't have bad self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're all narcissists, right? Right, exactly. And what Luther is saying is not you should feel bad about yourself and you should kick your self-esteem in the teeth, but rather in relation to Jesus, you recognize, oh, I'm a sinner <laughs> through and yeah. through. Yeah. And given the option between fleeing the cross or jumping up on the cross and taking Jesus's place, 100 times out of 100, I will flee, period. Uh, I'm no different than the boy who fled with the sheep naked through the streets. I'm no different than Peter who denied Jesus three times. It doesn't matter. But rather, when God chose to save us, he didn't follow the way of success and strength and me, me first, but rather he came as a baby in an animal trough. He died as a man of sorrows who had no place to lay his head. And he said, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And as you pointed out, the key thing there is deny yourself, which good luck. That's a, life, that's a lifelong pursuit that only ends in, well, Calvary. Right. Well, and a lot of times people, it will take Jesus' statement about uh, love love your neighbor as yourself as to mean, well, yes, you love your neighbor and you need to learn how to love yourself. Yes, exactly. Right. right. <laughs> Whereas uh, it's more in line with this, right? I mean, the love of, na- the point is that you find, um, or you put your love in your neighbor and not in yourself. Yes. You deny yourself. Right. Yeah. That only that's through, not easy to do. Only <laughs> through loving your neighbor can you actually learn what it means to love yourself. Mm-hmm. But likewise, if you don't love yourself, you can't love your neighbor. So therefore, put yourself in positions that force you outside of yourself and that you locate your love not in yourself and your own desires and wishes, but you locate your love outside yourself in the other, the beloved. Mm. And this is the point. You have the bridegroom and the bride, that our joy and our satisfaction is not in going, hey, look how well I'm dressed, but rather in the bridegroom. Because the beloved... It's like when you get married, you look at each other in the eyes, you hold hands and you face each other. And Mm -hmm. for those of you who have not been married, uh, you pretty much blank out everything that happens for the entirety of that ceremony. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. If you ask me what I said on my wedding, uh, I couldn't tell you. This is Mm -hmm. also why a a seasoned pastor will not wait for the person to say, I do. (laughs) Rather, he'll say, if so, say, yes, I do. (laughs) Yes. No, you're lots supposed to say, yes, prompting. I do. Exactly. <laughs> lots of prompting. Yeah, exactly. Little distractions. Right. That he, the, the beloved is lost in the other mm, completely. True. And that mm-hmm. really, that's the last time he'll ever be that lost um, in the other because then life kicks in and you put two sinners belly to belly like that. And well, there's going to be conflict and there's going to be hostility because you have two sinners trying to live together. Yeah. And neither one of them wants to give up what they've got. Yeah, and the eye contact you know, kind of breaks down. So <laughs> Exactly, exactly. You start looking at your shoes a lot more often or the wall. Mm-hmm. But this is the thing. And so not that we suffer for our own sins, writes Vith, not that we suffer, not that we have to suffer for our own sins, but faith in the gospel, putting our trust in what Christ accomplished for us on his cross, entails acknowledging our own weakness, the failure of our own works, the complete abnegation of our glory. Exactly. 
that the struggle that you put yourself in, whether it's, again, through loving your neighbor and being selfless, practicing selflessness, being humbled, considering yourself to be of no importance, however you enter into that, however that happens to you, in the end, what it does is it's the complete abnegation of our glory. It is the crushing of that old Adam who wants to be the toughest, the fastest, the wealthiest, the most famous, the most influential. But the only way to do that is through losing yourself, interestingly enough, to be in the world, but not of the world, to recognize that material attachments, to quote an old philosopher, is the source of all suffering. That and it's some, atta- of the, some, of this, some of this theology of glory stuff is what we might call what? First world problems. Right? Yes. Well, for us, it would be, yeah, that I don't have enough cars. Right. <laughs> Versus yeah, I, mean, I really where- wish I didn't have to sleep on dirt again tonight. Hmm. But but then then again, as we know, I mean, you've been in the mission field, and yeah. I, I've talked. I remember a story. Um, uh, it was a fellow seminarian who went to Madagascar, and he, he was talking about you know walking down this walking down you know a village street, mm-hmm. uh, and there was a woman out in the fields working. She had baby strapped on the back, baby in the front, kids that are around her feet. She's working in the field. She turns and looks at him and smiles, right. and he's like. How can that life be give you give you that kind of joy? I mean, obviously mm-hmm. it's difficult. You're working. You've got all these kids that are. Mm-hmm. I don't remember how many kids it was, and it's like, well, uh, you know, it's really a first world problem. Is that that you yeah. think that uh, joy can only be had in stuff and success and right. in right. you know big exactly. house or kids in daycare and all that? You know. Well, I think this is why something like Buddhism is appealing to people in the West, mm-hmm. uh, first world people, because. Buddhism, one of the core tenets of the teachings of the Buddha is that attachment to physical things is what causes suffering. It's what causes affliction. And that really to uh, escape suffering and affliction, you need to give away, give up on material attachments. Well, translate that into what we just said about our culture being all about suffering and affliction is bad, morally bad. Right. Attach that to this to kind of a flaky Buddhism <laughs> that says, yeah, give up on material things and you can be happy and put those two things together. And it's a very appealing philosophy, an ethic to live mm-hmm. by to most yeah. people. Well, especially for people who've been kind of through the ringer. Oh, um, yeah, for sure. Uh, maybe they've been quite wealthy and they've tried to live that life and mm-hmm. saw saw how unfulfilling it, it, it can be. I, mean, right. I don't know. I've never been there, but I imagine it's unfulfilling. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I guess it is. Um, but then you also have the total flip side where people are just complete hedonists, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's the way to avoid suffering is, the, is to just live like there's no tomorrow. Or what do we say? What's, what's the expression? Carpe diem or... What's Carpe that diem? YOLO? Oh, YOLO. That's <laughs> the one. Yeah. You know? And so just... Just live however you want to live, and just as long as nobody else is getting hurt and you're having a good time, then it's fine, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. As long as I'm not hurting anybody, what do I care what you're doing? Right. Yeah. But then then you get all the other stuff that comes with that, right? Yes, Drug use of course, and of course. You know, other ways of avoiding suffering. So. Right. So Vith continues, as we find ourselves in the cross of Jesus, we can find him in the far lesser crosses that we have to bear. When Christians suffer, according to Luther, Christ is with us in our suffering. Spiritual depression can drive us closer to him. Who knows better than anyone what it feels like to be racked with physical pain, to be abandoned and rejected by those he loved, to be forsaken by his father? In Luther's terms, Christ is hidden in our sufferings. If a child is hiding in the room, we do not see him, but he is nevertheless there. 
Similarly, in our sufferings, we do not perceive the hidden Christ, but he is nevertheless truly present to be apprehended by faith. To be sure, after the cross, Christ was glorified. God raised him from the dead, and he ascended to God's right hand. And Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we too are raised to new life. We too will be glorified in the eternal life to come, where we, will re- where we really will experience victory, have all of our problems washed away, and enjoy complete understanding. But our access to that glory is through the cross. Mm-hmm. To God alone be glory, we say. Notice how the critical word in those Reformation slogans is alone, sola. Yeah. God does have glory in himself, but we do not. Even in the secular spheres, contemporary Americans are mad after the theology of glory, expecting success on the job, perfect families, and either self-help remedies or government action to solve all our problems. But Americans today cannot handle suffering. We would rather die than suffer. We would rather be killed than suffer. Send for Dr. Kevorkian. You gotta Google that one now. But the truth of Christianity is evident in that everyone does, in fact, have problems, struggles, and sufferings. And this can be their point of contact for Christ, who on the cross not only was wounded for our transgressions, but also has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, which is a totally appropriate text for this time of year when we're in Advent. Yeah. But there it is in a nutshell that the truth of Christianity is evident, it's obvious. Everybody has problems, everybody has struggles, everybody suffers. This is your point of contact with Christ hidden in suffering, who not only was wounded for our transgressions, but bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. That it's not I who suffer, but Christ in me who suffers. Mm-hmm. It's not I who die, but Christ in me who dies. Right. So that just as Christ was raised to the, from the dead to the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. Right, and as, as we get into Christmas, I mean, that's the, um, the benefit of the incarnation, is that we know that Christ experience has has our life has our experience has exactly knows exactly um whatever it is that we struggle against whether it's our sin or or physical pain or well and especially during this time of year as you alluded to it's for me my opinion it's super important that we emphasize the concrete realness of -hmm. jesus's birth the concrete realness of the church with the concrete realness of the gospel and the gifts so that yes christ is hidden under the bread and wine. He is hidden under the words of the gospel. He is hidden under the waters of baptism. He is hidden in your sufferings and afflictions. But nonetheless, he is present, real, concrete, actually present, just as he is actually present in the manger, in the, in the animal trough. He is concretely, really present on the cross. He, that's why he says, go ahead, stick your fingers in the holes. Yeah. You're not going to infect me, right? It's the, the concrete realness of Jesus that's the reason I'm a Christian, period. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that the, reason, the, pl- the times that I struggled as a Christian are the times when Jesus is not concrete and real, but mm-hmm. rather becomes abstracted through my own unbelief and faith, my own confusion and doubt, my own theology of glory running roughshod over me, or others right. laying that or, on me. Or, church, or churches that, that neglect the gifts. Right? Well, of course. It's like mm-hmm. a person who walks over and says, here, can you, ha- can you hold the cinder block for me? I need to take a break. And you're like, sure. And you take it and he just walks away and you're like, um, uh, excuse me, are you, uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming back. Just hold on. And then he never comes back. And it's like, yeah. I don't, I don't think he's coming. I think he just gave me this weight to hold and he just walked away <laughs> hmm. like the story of Atlas. And like you said, uh, what happens with congregations and pastors is congregations and pastors will do that to each other constantly. <laughs> Go here, hold this weight. <laughs> 
We do this in our relationships with each other, in our families, with our friendships. This is the problem with friendships of convenience, that so many of our so-called friends are just friends of convenience. And when it's not convenient to be our friend anymore, because we're struggling or we're afflicted or there's something about what we're going through that this friend doesn't like or doesn't want to hang out and be a part of, they disappear. And you say, but I thought you were my friend. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, well, I'm just, I'm so busy or, oh, you know, life got in the way. I, 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 I job, I got this thing I got to do for work. I, I'd love to be there for you, but I need to mow the lawn, those kinds of things. Versus real friends who are there next to you so that when you do fall, they're like, I got gotcha. you. Mm-hmm. Or the ditch and, you, and everyone else is pointing at your sin and going, oh, you're a sinner. They're the one who get in the ditch with you. And, and yeah. not only do they help you out of the ditch, as Dr. Luther says in his sermon on the great commandment, they are so in it with you that people looking at you will say that the sin that is on that person is on you. They'll, they'll say, yeah. I can smell the stink on you, Jack. Yeah, you end up burying it too. Exactly. Just by your guilty by association or whatever. Right? right. That the very fact that you're supposed to bear the sin of your neighbor, that's really what love is, to be Christ to your neighbor, is the very thing that will be, get you accused of being a horrible sinner. Right. Going back to what you said about Jesus eating with prostitutes. You, know, you might get a pass the first time, but when the yeah. when your friend does it again, right, or the third time, right. and you keep the defending them, you know, right, like nah, when no, you help that person, it was noble, but this person, she deserves to stay in the ditch. Let her fight, figure. It. You know, she's done this so many times; she needs to do this for herself. Mm. That that's not love, because who who amongst us, when we fall into the ditch and we're overwhelmed by sin, would want somebody to say, "Hey, you know what? I helped you out three times, <laughs> but the, I draw the line. That's it. This one's you're on your own now." Yeah, right. Like, who of us, when we're in that situation, would want that to be said to us and mm. done to us? When you're stripped naked, beaten, and bloody by robbers and thrown into the ditch, and it was your fault, <laughs> which isn't in the text, fault. but right. We'll just but say nonetheless. It was. Let's yeah. say it is. Let's say it was your fault. Um, you knew they were waiting there and you chose to ride through anyways because you thought you were going to be a tough guy or you thought your mule was faster than he actually was, whatever it may be. That in our vocations, this is what we are called. This is what it means to deny yourself and take up your cross, is to be to be Christ for your neighbor, to, to say, even though I am a child of God, I do not regard equality with the other children of God as something to be grasped onto, but rather I will take the form of a slave by being found in the form of you, my neighbor, I will take you on in such a way, I will walk with you and carry you in such a way that when people look at you and they look at me, your sin will be indistinguishable from mine. And people will point the finger at me instead of you and say, that guy, that guy doesn't deserve our forgiveness. He doesn't deserve to be in church. He's not a real Christian because, you know, a real Christian would never do that, so forth and so on. And yet this is what Veith is after, is that a theology of the cross is just that. It's the cross. And we don't get to choose when it's laid on us, who's laid on us, where it's laid on us, when it's laid on us. Mm -hmm. We just don't get to choose. And that's what drives us back to a theology of glory over and over again, that we want choice. I'll choose my crosses. I'll choose who my neighbor's going to be. I'll choose, you know, my soulmate, right? I'm waiting for my soulmate. Well, there's no such thing. I'm sorry. There's just not. It's a myth. (laughs) It's a fairy tale. Go searching for your soulmate and when you stumble over the unicorn, your soulmate's right around the corner. It's not, it's not real. It doesn't happen. Mm. And yet, how, that's the way we're raised. Yeah, I know. To believe that myth. There's and so one I, person that's made for you. Right. And why do you think there's so many divorces in our country? Why do you think so many people after three and a half years get divorced? 
because yeah. you're not the right one. Yeah, She's still one. out there. He's still out there. Oh, yeah. Always looking for something more. Sure. Right. Exactly. Always looking for something more. Rather than saying, I can't believe this woman could possibly love me. <laughs> I am not a good catch. I, I'm swinging way above my batting average. We are unequally yoked. Whatever metaphor you want to use. Or saying, I don't, I can't believe you're my friend. Like how, what lottery did I win that you're my friend? Hmm. Or this church or this preacher or this whatever. Rather than look at it and go, this is a gift. Yeah. God has given me this gift that the cross is a gift because I recognize in this cross the death of my old Adam self, which is means I'm in Christ. That what I want more than anything is to be with Christ. And the thing that gets in the way of me being with Christ is myself. And so what can I do, Lord, to kill myself? without? Because killing myself would be a theology of glory, trying to play God. Yeah, so right. how, are you, how are you going to kill me so that I'm drawn deeper into my relationship with Christ and deeper into my relationship with you as my Heavenly Father? And his answer is, well, I'm going to crucify you. <laughs> and the yeah. new man in Christ says, awesome, start. And the old Adam goes, uh, I got some time next Tuesday between 145 and 3. Hmm. If that works for you. I keep having this uh, song lyric go through my head, for, uh, Nature Boy, right? Yeah. The great, greatest thing you'll ever learn is is to uh, to love and to be loved in return. And, yes. But the lyric's backwards, right? Because the greatest thing we ever learn is that, that we're loved um, even before we love anyone, right? Exactly. exactly. His love comes first. Always. Mm-hmm. That's why you're here. Mm-hmm. If you ever question God's love, uh, you're questioning God's love because God gave you a mind. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he your, made sin, you. your sin has blinded you to the reality. Exactly. <laughs> right. When you look in the mirror and you go, ugh, another pimple, uh, look past the pimple mm-hmm. and see the child of God staring back at you. Mm-hmm. He yeah. made you, which means he loves you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Period. Doesn't matter what other people say. Doesn't matter what you say. And that's not pious self-hatred. Pious self-hatred is, I really wish I could stop sinning. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I really wish I would I really wish I would feel sorry about I really wish I would stop feeling sorry about the bad things I do and start feeling sorry about the good things that I hold up in front of God to say look at what a good boy am I. Mm-hmm. That my virtues, the things that I consider my virtues are more damnable sins than my vices because I actually think God likes my virtues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I think the best aspects of me as a person are the things that God goes, "Man, really broke the mold with that one." <laughs> yeah. versus uh, what does this have to do with the first commandment again? Remind me. <laughs> yeah, what, is it, what does Paul say about boasting? Right. It is, um, it's, it's acceptable at birthday parties, weddings, <laughs> at, office. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, children's band concerts parties. and athletic right, events. Exactly. Right, exactly. That's right. <laughs> Terms and limitations may apply, not available in all states. <laughs> exactly, though, that who is... Who is glorious? God is. Who is holy? God is. Who is sanctified? God is. Who is. These are all just synonyms I mean, how for many Jesus. Times did it, how many times did he get the lashes minus one? I forget. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. A few times. Yeah. And yet we are, we are unrepentant theologians of free will. We are unrepentant theologians of choice. We, we demand choice. And the reason is because then we can take credit for it and say, I did that. And then God will smile down upon us and rain down rewards upon us beyond our all, all imagining. And even if not God, it'll be our neighbor will look at us and say, wow, yes, you really made yep, it. Yep, you killed it, man. You're killing the game. Yep. Oh, look at your kids. They're so beautiful. Right, exactly. Versus you're a bad like, parent. You're not much of a spouse. Uh, you're a terrible friend. Uh, you're not much of a pastor. 
<laughs> you're you're kind of a half baked Christian at best, and mm-hmm. your response is supposed to be, "You're right, forgive me." <laughs> Mm-hmm. Not, oh no, how dare you? You don't know me. If you knew me, you would know X, Y, no. Own that stuff because it's true at some level. It's true about it. That's why you're getting angry about it because at some level you're afraid. <laughs> yeah, it it's hit true. Home. It hit home, exactly. Uh-huh. And so bringing it full circle, what vocation does is it it weeds that stuff out okay. so that you can love your neighbor and serve your neighbor as you, as you would want him to serve you or her to serve you. And without that cross being laid on you, without being emptied out, without being crucified, you'll just continue to lie to yourself mm-hmm. about who you are and who you are in relation to your Christ and who you are in relation to your neighbor and so forth. And your lack of love, you'll confuse with actual love and your mm-hmm. selfish demands and self-destructive behavior, you'll confuse with charity. We do this. We all do this. It's, it's no secret. Everybody has this experience. You don't have to be that old. My five-year-old gets this. Right. And so don't be afraid of struggle. Don't be afraid to enter into suffering for the other, for the sake of the other. But just be wise as serpents and innocent as doves about it. That is, Mm -hmm. don't give yourself into an abusive relationship, confusing that with the cross. But likewise, don't run away from a relationship because you don't think this person is worth your charity or your selflessness. Or right. or a job or any opportunity, because we're talking about contentment, right? Exactly, I mean, satisfaction. That's, that's, that mm-hmm. uh, some of the most pious Christians I've ever known, outwardly speaking, have been, as I said, bartenders, uh, mm-hmm. people that are MMA fighters, uh, professional MMA fighters, people that you would never in a million years look at and say this person is a devout Christian. And yeah. yet you talk we with call them. them like people of the earth or whatever. Yeah, people of the earth, so right. That, and yet then you start talking to them and all they can talk about is Jesus. Hmm. Because they're like, I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about Jesus. And you realize, oh, wait, she's tending bar. She's evangelizing these people. She's an instrument of the gospel in a place that I'm not allowed to go into to do that. Mm-hmm. Or you talk to the MMA cage fighters, same thing. You enter into that and all of a sudden you have a vocation there and you're serving your neighbor by telling yeah. them about Jesus. And then they show up at church and all of a sudden they start coming up to communion and you're like, whoa, didn't see that coming a year ago. And yet mm-hmm. here we are. Yeah. And we're, we're too often like Jonah. We come back to Jonah again, that we're too often like Jonah when God says, go justify those terrible sinners whose wickedness has reached all the way up to heaven. I can't even ignore it anymore. And, mm-hmm. and Jonah goes, I'm not going to justify them. You justify them. Yeah. I'd rather die than justify them. And yet you're the instrument of God. So I'm sorry, he's going to bend all of creation toward saving Nineveh, whether you like it or not. And in our vocations, it's the same thing. God will work out his baptismal promises to us in our vocations, whether we like it or not. And it's just a question of, are you satisfied with the gift that he gives you, or are you unsatisfied and you see it as a burden, as a curse? Mm-hmm. Right. If you're not focused on Christ and him crucified for the sin of the world, you will 100% see it as a burden or a curse eventually. Because eventually you're going to lose Eventually, you're going to be weak. Eventually, you're not going to heal. You're not going to win. You're not going to be successful. Your church is going to shrink. Whatever it may be, you stumble. You question your faith. You doubt. You even apostatize and renounce your faith, let's say. Hmm. It's going to happen. It happens to all of (laughs) us because we're human. We're sinful. And so, do you flee to the cross for your comfort and your safety? Or do you flee to philosophy, political agenda, personal agenda, whatever it may be, instead of that. You just fall back on your own works. Right, you fall back on your own works, exactly. Thinking, well, God will be pleased if I do this. 
Yeah, I'm going to make this right. Right, exactly. I'm going to make this right. I have the choice. No, you don't. <laughs> As we talked about in the clinic uh, podcast, if you want to locate our spirituality, you have to look in our mouth. You have to look for the body and blood of Jesus. You have to look in our ear holes for the gospel. All of that's coming from outside of us to us. It's not something that we generate in ourselves. Likewise, our vocations are not self-generated for the most part. <clears throat> they find us. And like I said, we have some limited choice when it comes to our vocation, but we don't have complete choice. We don't have absolute choice. And I believe anyways, that that's really the foundation of Christian vocation is accepting that you have no control and that that's a good thing. It's uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt has this great lecture, the good news that our wills are bound. Mm -hmm. It's, and it's such a provocative thing because he's telling people it's a good thing that you're in bondage to sin. (laughs) because Jesus died for sinners. And if you're not in bondage to sin, he didn't die for you. So let's backtrack and rethink this whole, I want free choice thing. Well, yeah. I mean, what is, what does Paul, Paul call that? Is that in Galatians or is that Romans? What's that? Right. Where, where, um, yeah, it's Galatians where, where the law is a taskmaster. Exactly. No, just, yeah. The pedagogy. Pedagogy or disciplinarian. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and even Romans, Romans one, where God gave them up to the desires of their heart. He gave them the choice they wanted. Yeah. And every time he gave them the choice, the desire of their heart, they chase after false gods. Yeah. Every time. So it's a, it's a uh, learning experience. Right. And notice from worshiping false gods, then all of the improper behavior comes around after as a fruit. It's right. not because they were doing these horrible things, exchanging natural relations for unnatural relations, that they then as a consequence worshiped wrong gods. No. As a consequence of worshiping false gods, they then did this behavior. They enacted this behavior. Mm-hmm. Likewise, Paul does this in Corinthians. Because you abuse the Lord's body and blood, look at what's happening to you. These mm-hmm. these things are happening as a consequence of that. The fruit of unbelief, the, the, the fruit of this kind of blasphemy is, here it is, all these negative, the works of the flesh, divisions, envy, strife, all these things. And yet, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So how do we get those things? Well, in our vocations, through our vocations, through suffering in the cross. Because I believe, and I think this is proven biblically and by experience, that when you struggle and suffer, it makes you a more compassionate person. Because suffering... Yeah, at, least, it, at least you gain empathy, right? For the, at the very least, because you've struggled, you've been there, you've sat in the gutter. Mm-hmm. And when you see mm-hmm. someone else sitting in the gutter, like I said, you understand. And even if you I can't... Always thought that, I, yeah. I always thought this was an important thing is to say... Uh, like with visitation of those who are sick or dying, yeah. um, that 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 the whole the whole church be encouraged to do that. I mean, yes, oh, the pastor has a unique unique vocation there uh, to provide you know spiritual care, mm-hmm. but um, but if for anything that um, you know the same reason why you would take kids to a funeral, right, right, yeah. Whereas a lot of people don't because they want to shelter their kids from the reality of death. Right. I'm like, why would you do that? Especially since it's our doorway into eternal life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, and plus, if they don't, if they don't experience that, right? If they don't, if they don't witness it, especially if it's someone they knew, right? right? Exactly. Yeah, very then, much so. Then they're they're they've lost, you know, the pedagogy that that provides mm-hmm. that God provides through that. Exactly. You know, not just emotionally through having mm-hmm. to process the emotions that happen when you look at a body and go, oh, that that's not her. Mm-hmm. Whatever was her ain't there no more. Um, to process that, but also process their their baptismal faith that. This person's in the mm-hmm. resurrection now. What does this yeah, mean? But not, <laughs> by, not by sight. Right, not right, by sight, by but faith. by faith. Exactly. That you're not seeing her, you're seeing 
Jesus hidden in her death. Mm-hmm. This is not her, but rather this is Jesus' death for her. Yeah, you're, you're she's not dead, but she's sleeping. Exactly, right? you're depriving your children of all of that, and this is the point of struggle. That entering into these struggles, being challenged in such a way that even when you don't want to do it, you do it because you know you need to do it. That through that, it does it reveals something about yourself to yourself. And as a Christian, I think what it reveals to you about yourself is how limited you are, and mm-hmm. how how little control you have, uh, not only over your physical. Uh, attributes, your skills, but also mentally and emotionally, how limited you are mm-hmm. and how malleable you are. You, you know, our minds are very malleable. They're very open to suggestion. You just watch like 15 YouTube videos on the same conspiracy theory and tell me if you don't believe in that conspiracy theory after 15 YouTube videos. Yeah. You're Ancient like, aliens she makes whatever, a good point. Yeah. I mean, the way she talks is a really good point. It's like, I, well, think, the, I think those chemtrails are... That's right. Yeah, that's right. Legit. Chemtrails. That's right. It's like, you watch enough videos about chemtrails, you will believe chemtrails are legit. But... Yeah. You can just push away from the table and go, all right, I've watched one video. That's enough. I got the inferiority. No, I disagree. Moving on with life. We're very malleable. And this is the importance of being on point about law and gospel as a pastor, about being on point with your preaching and teaching in your in your pastoral vocation, uh, because words do matter for the most part, <laughs> unless we choose to not have them matter. But likewise, as a Christian, your, your confession of your baptismal faith is important and it matters. Because in those moments when you're standing over an open grave or in those moments when you're kneeling next to uh, the hospital bed and there's a newborn baby in the bed, whether you're teaching Sunday school or you're simply encouraging a confirmand to come to church after confirmation Sunday, Mm -hmm. whatever it may be in whatever capacity it is, sharing the gospel with your neighbor across the bar, whatever it is, are you focused on yourself or are you focused on your neighbor? Is this all about the payoff? for you, or is it all about doing this without any thought of getting payback, right? And again, this is in relation to our Christian vocation. This isn't to say that we should just give away our snowblower to our neighbor and never ask her back like Ned Flanders, but rather to say, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, because in the world, there are wolves. Well, and that's probably one of the most challenging things, which we didn't really talk about too much. What's that? that, um, Well, Christian vocation... uh, it isn't all that prescriptive. That's right. Exactly. It's messy. <laughs> you know, yeah. So it's messy. It, it, it's it's going to be very different for different people. And I think one of the aspects then that, that we've kind of hit on is that um, it's there's freedom, which means it's outside of judgment. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, you know, it's not get, your vocation is, is not to tell someone else how right. to be, you know, the parent to their children, right. for example. You know, well, and I say this how, quite often that you are free to question and doubt. You mm-hmm. are free to mess up love and come back to church the next Sunday, confess your sin and receive the exact same body and blood for the exact same forgiveness of sins you received last week. And yeah. when you screw it up again tomorrow, guess what? Come back and do it again. Why? Because you're a baptized child of God and the yeah. door is the always vo- open. <laughs> that's the vocational secret sauce, right? There. Exactly. That's right. That's the secret Szechuan sauce. It, <laughs> take, it may take us nine seasons of this podcast, but we will get to the, the we will find that secret Szechuan sauce. Mm. So, yeah, uh, go ahead and, and look up uh, Veith's article online. It's a wonderful article. Like I said, it's very short, a couple, what, seven, eight paragraphs, if that. And um, dive into this whole matter of the theology of glory and the cross. Read his book uh, on, what is, what again, what is the name of the book? God, 
Got it work? Got it work. Thank you. I was thinking yeah. men at work cargo. Um, <laughs> come from a land down under. Vegemite sandwiches. That's where I learned about Vegemite was from the, the oh, nice. men at work cargo album. Ugh, terrible album. But anyways, um, yeah, go go check out Veith. He's great, like I said. And especially if you struggle with this whole topic of vocation, I know I do constantly. I'm constantly, I'm constantly challenged to want to learn more. To go deeper mm-hmm. into the matter of vocation. We've talked about this in past episodes about as you get older, you read Luther from different points in his life too, because you you resonate more with Luther in, at different points in your own life. You read different authors, you're attracted to different things. But the older I get and the more children I have, <laughs> mm-hmm. primarily, the more I am interested in, in knowing more about vocation and how it relates to the Ten Commandments and how it relates to baptism of the cross and how it relates to being as wise as serpents, but innocence as doves, and this whole matter of Christ hidden in sufferings. And like you said, it's not prescriptive, and therefore it's messy. And you mm-hmm. can't just pick up a set of encyclopedias, so to speak, and just read volume 1 through 24, and then you've got vocation nailed. Yeah, It's like an eel. It's like trying to, to hug an eel. It's, it's yeah. constantly moving. It takes, it takes listening, yeah. um, not just you know, to the other, to your neighbor, but mm-hmm. to the scripture, right? Yeah, right. You know, what, 100%. What God has to say. And then, you know, and prayer and consideration of that. Right. And Which all takes place in, in <laughs> relation to your vocation, because how many times during the day as a parent do you say, Lord, have mercy? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I need some help here. <laughs> yeah, I need, need a little help. Little, little, uh, I got a hostage situation, I think. <laughs> and I need a negotiator. I tried to preach the gospel, but they just wouldn't forgive me. So check it out. I like these. Like I said, I appreciate them. And I hope you uh, enjoy the article. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Come back next week for a brand new one. And uh, I hope we pass the audition. See you. Do you like what you're listening to? Higher Things podcasts are free for you, but they aren't free to produce. Please consider supporting the Higher Things podcasts, as Lutheran as it gets, Gospeled Boldly, and The Black Cloister. Check out www.higherthings.org support for more information. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.